This episode is brought to you by HBO Original Films, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Told through the eyes of Lacks's daughter and a journalist, the film focuses on the life of Henrietta Lacks, an African-American woman whose cells were used to create the first immortal human cell line. Newsday calls it a beautiful, moving film. For your Emmy consideration in an outstanding television movie and all other categories. This year, for the first time in primetime Emmy history, music supervisors are being recognized by the TV Academy. Who are they, you might ask? They're the musical curators who choose the songs on a film soundtrack, but even more specifically, they create the musical landscape on a film or TV show where a score is absent and take the project to a whole other level. What does a soundtrack do? Think about the feeling that the golden oldie hits of the 1970s interjects into James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy, or how the groovy alternative singles Raise the Romance and Zach Braff's Garden State, or the eclecticism that the songs set in shows like Fargo and Legion, what, what effect they have. Music supervisors have been lobbying for recognition at the Emmys for more than five years. They were finally allowed to join the TV Academy two years ago, and earlier this year they were granted their own category. One of the those rallying behind musical supervisors at the Emmys is Thomas Golovich, and he's the Emmy-nominated musical supervisor from Better Call Saul. We're with him today, right now. So this is the first year that musical supervisors are getting recognized by the TV Academy. Tell me about, um, tell me about that journey, and, and, and finally getting them recognized. Well, I think that the, the Guild of Music Supervisors, which is you know, an organization of a few of us that have been very active for the last 10, 15 years, uh, realized that there were a number of limitations to our profession. One of them was that people didn't know what we did. Uh, there were no awards for what we did. There was not much of a public discourse about our contribution to projects. And uh, the economics of music supervision has been extremely hampered and very challenging. It's hard to make a living as a music supervisor, no matter how successful you might seem to be. So I think that we recognize that one of the major issues was uh, TV Academy's uh, recognition of the field and the fact that supervisors were not really members of the TV Academy, we weren't even brought into the, the group. Uh, with the advent of um, Michael Levine and Ricky Minor heading up the music branch, uh, we suddenly had uh, essentially allies in that effort. They recognized the contribution of music supervisors, and when we had met with them early on, myself and John Houlihan, we discussed with them and with the entire uh, music branch how we felt that we were allies with them, and that we were in many ways working with them in the same field, but we were not allowed any voting privileges, we weren't allowed any involvement privileges ultimately, and it didn't really make a lot of sense to us, and we tried to make our case the best that we could. Uh, the TV Academy had a lot of internal debate about this. I think there was a lot of uh, misconceptions about what supervisors do, but ultimately uh, they did vote to include us as members of the music branch, which was a, a huge victory for us, and really was because of Ricky and Michael's uh, efforts. They, they really spearheaded it in many ways for us, uh, and their openness and their ability to let us communicate and, and what we felt was appropriate. Um, then uh, later on, John Houlihan and uh, Tracy McKnight, who are also members of the Guild of Music Supervisors, uh, they uh, presented uh, a case for having an Emmy uh, Award. And much to our delight, uh, the TV Academy recognized the information, they processed it, and they saw that we do have a creative contribution to television and that uh, there was, it was appropriate to have an Emmy, uh, an Emmy uh, category for music supervision. And quite often, you're hired before the composer. 
Yeah, we are hired, usually we're among the earliest people hired on. Sometimes we're hired on before even uh, cinematographers are brought on. Uh, a lot of times if someone has a very music intensive project, let's say it's a, a film, they may want to hire us on to talk about the music tone as they're developing the script. Or as they're putting script song ideas into their scripts, they may hire us to help them vet out how realistic within the budget constraints that they're likely to have that those songs are clearable. So before they build an entire sequence around a song, it may be very helpful to have a music supervisor on board to review it, check the, the potential licensing hurdles that might happen, and allow them to make other choices or suggest other choices that they can kind of fit into the fabric of a script. Uh, likewise, for television, we're usually brought on board very early on when the writer's room is just developing their uh, framework for the new season. And we will come in, hear what plans they have for the characters, get a sense of the arcs of the different stories, and put together mixtapes that we will present to them to hopefully help influence some of the writing, some of the directing, some of the editing, and the general dialogue about how music can be used as a storytelling device in that particular season. So on Better Call Saul, who are you interfacing with generally? Is it is it Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan? I mean, like you said, yes, the writer's room. But I mean, who's making the final decisions on, yeah, I want that song in this particular episode? Yeah, ultimately the final decisions are being made by the showrunners. In the case of, of Better Call Saul, it's Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. Uh, we work with them pretty closely. In fact, we do something very unusual in that show in that we have music spots which are where we identify where music will be used and whether it's going to be score, whether it's going to be source, whether it's going to be source as score, uh, whether it's going to be silence. And that's done in one very detailed session with the sound effects and the, the dialogue folks. So we're kind of figuring out the entire fabric of the episode together with Vincent Peter in the room and with the editors and with the post team. And we discuss with great detail what the plan is. Then, once we know, okay, Dave Porter will be handling this sequence and this sequence, and we know what the general tone is, which we all kind of discuss, and then I will be handling with my team these specific moments for music, and we have a sense of what we're trying to tell story-wise, then we build those different elements. We work with our music editor, Jason Newman, to cut the songs specifically into those sequences and then present them to the producers, and then they basically make a choice from those, then we prepare them for the mix, and basically then uh, supervise the mix to make sure that the sound levels all make sense, the edits are all clean, that everything is overlapping in an elegant way and is both invisible and compelling. Now this is a generalization on my part with episodic cable television, uh, specifically the FX and the AMC shows. I feel that they're using more songs nowadays in their, in their soundtrack than score. Do you feel that's a trend? And if so, why why is that? It's very interesting. I think it depends on the project. You know, certain projects are very score heavy. Like for example, uh, a new series that's on Netflix, which is really dynamic and exciting, is Ozark. Ozark is largely score. There's a little bit of source music in there, uh, but it's not being used uh, as fully as some other shows. Uh, if you think back to some of the network shows, like you know your Grey's Anatomy, those songs were those shows were wall-to-wall -wall songs. So in a way, they were really filling the space with music. Um, I think in many ways it's a mixed uh, it's a mixed bag. Ultimately, some shows use music uh, very aggressively as far as source music goes, and very little score. Others use a lot of score and very little songs. I think it's a case by case basis, and the more sophisticated the project is, the more clearly defined the use of music is. 
I think that using music to spackle over errors is happening less and less on cable shows because the quality control has gotten so high. You have some of the best filmmakers you know, in the United States working in television now, and they are holding on to those sort of uh, quality control uh, requirements for their work, which means that they're becoming more sophisticated about how to use music. They're bringing in higher level practitioners to contribute to that. So I think that there is more clarity as to whether it is going to be a song or score or neither. And I think that that is definitely happening, much more than uh, a specific large amount of songs, large amount of score. I think that the careful calibration of how music is being used is getting much more uh, clear cut and I think much more quality. Now what are the parameters on Better Call Saul? Because you've got some fantastic songs here. Um, I remember that, that piece from uh, Todd Thierry during when, when Kim is do the, the Superwoman montage that she goes through in episode 303. a great 70s, 80s feel to it. Um, and then you've got something like Little Richard's Hurry Sundown when Jimmy is getting booked in, in, in the same ep episode. Hurry down Hurry down Son Hurry Won't you hurry on, on down? You know, you're going from, you know, one one era to a, a completely other era. Todd's, by the way, just for clarification, Todd's piece. He's he's a millenn he's a millennial, he's a millennial, um, a Scandinavian producer. dance yeah dance music producer, um, but. What are your what are your parameters? I mean, it, it seems like you've got a nice. Um, it seems like you've got a great tabula rosa. We do. I, I think this happened largely on Breaking Bad. We we recognized early on in the process of working on Breaking Bad that we didn't need to stick to a specific genre, and that in many ways the sort of full spectrum of music available to us, as long as it was buried, or I should say, as long as it was very tied to character and to circumstance and to setting, and the storytelling was really clear cut, almost any world would make sense in our world. We could have uh, a, a, a Buenos Aires DJ doing a, uh, um, a remix of a classic uh, Argentine folk song in the middle of Walt burying money in the desert, even though it's not the same Spanish as he would be you know, in that environment, it's not the same culture, but it speaks somehow to the journey that Walter White was in in that particular moment. We found that the Brazilian music would sometimes really do a, a very artful way of getting us deep into the emotions of a character at a moment, even though there was no obvious connection to Brazil. Um, I think likewise with Better Call Saul, because we were trying to figure out the palette of sounds and really working from a clean slate, we had no, almost no overlap with the sound of Breaking Bad in Better Call Saul. We were starting from scratch. And we found that in many ways, because we were focused on the storytelling and on character, it gave us a lot of latitude. And that latitude is something that we've really seized upon. And I'm always surprised by what we find in the show. I think that one of the edicts of the show that Vincent and Peter have really built for us is 
not only do we want to find something that speaks to character, speaks to scene, but something that surprises us. So that sometimes it can be counterintuitive or it has a special magic of its own. They're very confident storytellers and they feel that they know their stories really well. And sometimes an idea that might seem incredibly counterintuitive or coming from a radically different world really speaks to that moment. In the case of the Tauteria track, uh, the edict that we were given, the, the mission that we were given was we want to find a superwoman theme that she is using. She's burned the candle on both ends. She's working night and day. She's falling asleep with her books on top of her. And she needs to inject herself almost like with coffee to get through her morning ritual, which she's doing at a gym across the street because she doesn't even have time to go home. But we want to express this superwoman theme, this idea that she is somebody who is doing everything she can to somehow make the day magical. And at the same time, she's at the very edge of control. She is literally about to skitter off the rails. And that song has all those elements. It has a sense of the heroism. It has fun. It has a dynamics. It also has a sense that it could at any moment completely go off the rails, which is essentially the story we're telling with Kim. This episode is brought to you by HBO's original film, Wizard of Lies. Starring Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer as Bernie and Ruth Madoff, this HBO film production examines Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. Newsday writes, the acting is impeccable and the direction scalpel sharp for your Emmy consideration and outstanding television movie and all other categories. Now the name of the song is, El you, if, you, if you say Alfonso, uh, Muscadunder. Alfonso Muscadunder. Where did you where did you find the, the music? I'm I'm sure you've known about him for quite some time. You worked at KCR uh, KCRW as a DJ and a music programmer. Um, probably the nation's leading uh, you know provider of you know eclectic music. How did how did how did you, uh, when did you first hear Todd's work? Uh, I actually, dis uh, well, I should have discovered, I, f I came across him uh, on a trip to Norway. Um, I was meeting with uh, another producer there um, uh, named Lindstrom, and uh, I had kind of heard about Terry's work and was very intrigued with it, and I met with him there, and we kind of built up a friendship, and we've talked for years about finding a project to work on together. We haven't quite found that project yet. But he sent me his record early on, and I, of course, fell head over heels in love with it. He released a whole series of re-edits. In fact, he was mostly well-known as a guy who would do these incredibly tasteful re-edits of classic old soul and disco tunes. And the work was so dynamic and so exciting and so tasteful. And you could tell he was somebody who's very, very uh, specific about how sounds get carved out. He produces things with great detail. And Lindstrom is very similar. They work together. They work in a similar studio. So there's a sort of a fastidiousness in the detail of the work, which I think reflects the character of Kim. Kim is herself a very fastidious person. She's somebody who sweats the details because she wants it to be perfect. So in a way, whether you know this about Toteria's work or not, whether you hear it in the music or not, it becomes the reality of the sequence. And so in a sense, when you know a little bit about an artist and you know how they work, that can resonate with a character because you know that there is something inhabiting the magic of that work that speaks to that character. And hopefully that will resonate in that moment and give you a deeper sense of where that character is in their story. Now, do you usually, you know, when you identify sequences, say a montage in an episode, do you usually have say at least three songs lined up? Usually more than that. Like we go through waves. So for instance, let's say that we read a, a, um, an outline of a script and we see a sequence that could possibly be a montage. We don't know if it'll be there. It might be cut out. 
we will prepare some ideas and say, hmm, okay, we're gonna have Jimmy going to a mall to scout something out. So we think, okay, that could be a montage. Let's see, let's build a series of ideas and we're thinking, where is he in his story right now? Is he very kind of dastardly? Is he sort of, at the same time, is he sort of open-minded? Is he in a positive place? Is he being creative? So we'll build those ideas. Then we'll get the script and the script might say, oh, we actually do have a montage here. Generally speaking, for Better Call Saul, much to our relief, they don't throw in songs frequently. So we're not starting with a preconceived notion. We have kind of a, a blank canvas. So we might build another series of ideas now that we have a little bit more detail in it. We might say, oh, it's a short sequence or it's a long sequence. That means that we have to figure out choices that will be dynamic enough that they shift with time in a way that can be really compelling. Then we'll get to the point where the director might say, you know what, I want to shoot something and have it. We're doing this all MOS without sound, so we want to have something playing on set. So as he's moving around, it gives everything a rhythm. So they might have a choice there. That choice is hopefully not going to be tied to picture. So the idea being that we can then go back into editorial, meet with the editors, and then basically say, okay, let's talk about what it looks like. What does the actual footage look like? Is the idea that they used on set working? They might say, you know what, it's slower than I'd like. I want something with a bit more tempo. So then we'll find some other ideas that have a different type of tempo that might help to nuance what we're looking at. Maybe we're attaching elements of costume or set design, or maybe it's simply the way the cinematography is. And we say, wow, it's these beautiful fluid shots. Let's find something that can really accentuate those elements. So then we'll set a bunch of ideas for that. Then we come to the point of having a music preview. Then we might say, okay, the editor cut this entire sequence with this song in mind, but we'd like to see some other options. Now we'll do another set. Those will all be cut with our music editor to picture, so we know that the edits of the, of the songs are presented exactly as we would have them in the final mix. The sound levels are all balanced out, and then that gets presented, and it's usually between five and six songs all of which are pre-cleared because we don't want to have anything presented to us that we can't get later on because of a clearance problem or a copyright violation or something else that's of issue. So we have to pre-vet everything ahead of time, which is very labor intensive. What's your, what's your uh, timeline like? Uh, I mean, episode. It, it can be incredibly short. Sometimes we're spotting an episode on a Tuesday and the next Wednesday we're mixing it. So that's an incredibly short period of time. We do a lot of the lead work ahead of time because we're pre-clearing it. So we know that when it comes to that window of time, if we're making adjustments or if we're changing choices, that we can hopefully have those five or six days to make those adjustments. We're not desperately trying to find somebody who's in South America that may or may not have part of the copyright. We hopefully have done that earlier on. But sometimes we end up in a complete jam where it turns out a copyright has shifted from one company to the other and we're pushing everybody to get an approval through or uh, an artist has passed away and we're trying to convince you know, their estate that the value that they think the song has and the actual market value are not compatible. So we might be trying to navigate them. Can you get, is there an example from this season where you dealt with a scenario like that? Oh God, they're happening all the time. It's almost impossible to even pull them. You know, sometimes it's very straightforward. You're going to a, a music publisher that we work with quite a bit, and they will be able to say, yes, we can clear this. We need approval from the artist, so we might need two extra days. We will schedule accordingly. Maybe with a label will be a very simple, straightforward thing. Other times, like right now, we're pursuing a, a song that's in Croatia. So I'm calling Croatia at midnight with my really poor Croatian, trying to find somebody who can help me find you know, the copyright owner. As it turns out, the writer is actually Spanish, and they have their entire uh, you know, piece of music in France. So now we have to go to Sassem and see if they have any evidence of this songwriter showing up in their system. 
Also, they have a set of rules in France that means that you need to get approval from the artist in order to approve it. So there's a whole process there. So all of this stuff can happen. It can get so Byzantine so quickly. But, but in those instances, that's remarkable that you strive for that perfection because of the fact that in that instance, I would think, well, let's just go to the little Richard tune because it's easier to, to clear just hypothetically speaking. I mean, we have to always prepare for a backup plan because what you don't want is to go after the perfect song and then suddenly realize we can never get that and no one's ever gonna feel good about the other options. So our job in many ways is to find multiple different angles to tell the story. I guess in some senses it's similar to an actor. Really great actors will add a different spin to each line reading because they know that if they're coming at it very passively and the other character is coming at it very aggressively, that might be right for the editorial team as they're trying to build the scene. But it might be they need a little, little bit of passive-aggressive energy in their response, and that might add another spin. We do the same thing with music. We might say, in this way, we're really playing up, like in the case of the um, uh, Little Richard tune, what was powerful about that to me was the fact that it had this almost gospel you know, beginning that was dramatic and huge and powerful and it was establishing the importance of this moment for Jimmy. And then it shifts and it shifts into this very sad, almost defeated trudge towards inevitability. And in many ways that was the shift in the dynamic for Jimmy as a character. He had been, he had been, you know, basically he had been violated by his brother. He had been betrayed. Someone he had spent his entire life trying to impress, trying to somehow gain his, his approval on, and he had been betrayed by him. And that is a massive betrayal. And now he knows that he has now taken another step towards the inevitable result of him moving towards criminality, moving away from trying to do the right thing because you're just never rewarded in his world for doing the right thing. And so somehow that song captured both. But we had to have other options as well. So we found other elements that we thought would also be compelling options. The One of, one of the last questions I wanted to ask you is about your path, uh, finding, finding your way in, into the role as a music supervisor. So I went to film school. So I guess it all started really in film school. I knew in high school that I wanted to be part of storytelling. I loved films. I watched more films than anyone I knew. And I went to film school specifically to write and direct. That was what I was interested in. Um, I happened to be pursuing music at that same time, but I don't think I ever understood that music could be a career. You know, I grew up in Massachusetts. It's not an area where people say, oh, I'm gonna start a band and get rich. You know, it's like you get into a band so you can get laid and then you get a real job. And so I think in a sense that for me, moving through film school, um, I didn't know what I was going to end up doing, but I certainly hoped it would be somehow in narrative filmmaking. What was interesting was I got distracted and got into journalism, started an internet magazine, uh, lost an enormous amount of money in a very quick period of time, and then suddenly realized, okay, what do I do now? And uh, in trying to help out uh, KCRW, who had just begun their internet presence, uh, I volunteered to kind of help consult and give them some ideas about how to avoid some of the pitfalls I had stumbled so clumsily into. And in doing so, they offered me a spot to volunteer in the music library, which kind of reignited a passion I had for music and having this extraordinary library to play with. It was like a playground. I was like a kid in a sandbox, and I just played music whenever I was in there. And somebody heard what I played and would ask what that was, and several DJs they kept on asking about these things that I would find. And then someone said, you should put a demo together. So I put a demo together. Um, that got approved. They gave me a, a very late night radio show between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. Saturday nights and Sunday 
mornings. Then I started to kind of cover for the uh, the gospel DJ who did the Sunday morning show, and then I would sit in for everybody else because I was broke. I had no money. My family was not anywhere near Los Angeles. So in a way, every time someone went to vacation, I would sit in for them. I would study what they did. I would study the hip-hop shows. I would study the jazz shows. I would study the classical shows. I would try to know as much as I could so if I was sitting in their chair, I was speaking to their audience, I might be adding in some of me, but I was always doing it from the framework of what they knew and what made their show special. That was incredibly valuable for me because I began to recognize the breadth of music and began to realize that it's a set of colors, it's a set of paints. So when I came back into the prospect of what do I do with my career now, someone said, you should look into music supervision. And I didn't know the job existed. So I basically uh, went to a music supervisor, worked at his, as his intern, and studied what he did. And I began to learn about the business and the relationships and the organization and all the diplomacy. And then took my knowledge of film and studying film craft um, and my knowledge of music and began to work with those together. And with one of my friends from KCRW, Gary Calamar, uh, we ended up working on Six Feet Under together. And that was, for me, the perfect place to learn. I had done a couple films beforehand, and they had gone to Sundance, which I think is what you were referring to. But that was basically about the halfway through my time at KCRW. It was around uh, 1999. I had started in 97. I think the biggest part for me was working with Gary on Six Feet Under and learning from Alan Ball and Alan Poole, who were fantastic mentors. Uh, and soon after it, I got a chance to work on Breaking Bad, which was an extraordinary experience. That led to The Walking Dead, which led to The Killing, which led to Ray Donovan, which led to you know, uh, Better Call Saul and all these other projects. It's been a fantastic run. Now, will you work on multiple series at the same time? Yes, you have to. Unfortunately, the economics of music supervision makes it impossible to survive on one series uh, alone. In fact, I would say that there's almost no music supervisors who make a proper living doing music supervision. It is a struggle for almost everybody, especially in television. I think there's some exceptions in film. Uh, some are, you know, if you're doing musicals, they're very music intensive, and some of those budgets can be reasonable. Uh, but if you're doing, you know, most television music supervision is woefully underpaid and is a, a, a very difficult profession to survive in. So while you're working on Better Call Saul, were you working on another? Were you working on Walking Dead? We're working, yes, they, they both overlapped. Uh, we're working right now on uh, 10 projects at the same time. And it's, it's, it's an insane pace. How, bi how big is your team? Uh, there's four of us, three plus my, uh, myself plus three. And they're all extremely well trained and everybody is very efficient with their time. Uh, we share ideas, we look out for each other, we are, we're doing multiple things at once. Uh, but honestly, it shouldn't have to be this way. You know, we shouldn't have to work all through the year to break even, and that's essentially what we do. And then, and then as far as additional projects that you have, can you share those with us? Are you working on any, on, on any side albums? Uh, right now, I mean, we're primarily doing music supervision work, so we're working on Shut Eye, which is a series for Hulu, uh, Sneaky Pete Season 2, which is a series for Amazon. We're doing Grace and Frankie, which is a Netflix series, Love, which is also a Netflix series. Uh, we're working on uh, a brand new show uh, for Amazon as well called Dangerous Book for Boys. That's a second project with Brian Cranston, who wrote an absolutely gorgeous script. Um, and we're doing a show called Nobody's, which is a fantastic comedy. Um, and we have, we have multiple projects all going on at the same time. Halt and Catch Fire is just wrapping up uh, the fourth season, and that is a masterpiece work, and I, I know that uh, time will show that to be one of the truly great shows of the sort of golden era of television. And very few people have seen it, so my hope is that people will catch up with it. Netflix is a gorgeous thing for this. I think for people who love what I do and love my work, having a Netflix account is like the best film school you could ask for.
Thomas Gulovich, music supervisor from Better Call Saul, Emmy nominated this year on Crew Call.